on the 24-7 Sports Network. My name is Nathan King, your host. Hope everybody has had a really good week here as we approach officially summer, right? In two days, you'll be listening to this on the 18th, so almost up on those summer months. I hope everybody is having a relaxing, fun summer, able to get outside, enjoy things before the craziness of Brian Harson's first football season really gets rolling with media days at the end of next month but just because it's the off season obviously we've got a ton to still talk about got a pretty fun guest today somebody that I've wanted to have on for a while and that is if you're on Twitter you know him as SEC Statcat name is Mr. Clark Brooks um he compiles SEC statistics he's just a football junkie who does all sorts of stat work um charting he does all of his own stuff um going back and watching games and analyzing film and breaking down what players in the SEC and what teams in the SEC do best and what they do worst. Um, really, I mean, he was just able to come up with all kinds of crazy numbers just off the top of his head. He's pretty much memorized all of his own statistics. And so we got into a discussion about Auburn, about some of Auburn's best players, where they fit in the SEC picture. Got a little bit into Auburn's quarterback battle. He has an interesting take on that. I think you guys will enjoy that discussion. And then we just talked a little bit of SEC football in general, and at the end of the show, we'll get to a couple news tidbits um, relating to Auburn football, but we'll get into that interview with Clark right now. All right, now we have a very special guest here on the Auburn Undercover podcast. We had Blake Lovell on a few weeks ago. I consider him a huge expert on SEC basketball. Now we have what I consider to be a huge expert on SEC football. Um, that is somebody that you might know in the Twitterverse as SEC StatCat, whose real name I learned for the first time today. Um, but Mr. Clark Brooks is now on the podcast to talk with us today about SEC football and Auburn football, of course. First of all, Clark, thanks for coming on. And uh, before we get started, just kind of give the listeners a general introduction to you um, and why you are such a crazy SEC football nut and why you spend probably 20 hours a day uh, putting together SEC stats and stuff. And if, if y'all have not checked him out before, go check out his website. But kind of give us an introduction to yourself and, uh, and where all that knowledge comes from. Well, I love the praise. First off, thank you so much for having me, Nathan. Second, to answer your question. So this is going to be year four where I've just had a passion of just charting what actual teams are running. What are their schematics? You know, when we talk about Auburn, especially in the Gus Malzana era, it was synonymous with the inside zone bubble screen. Well, um, as the spread element started to permeate throughout the, the conference, we want to see exactly how effective that was compared to maybe, you know, um, LSU's pass first scheme or Alabama's um, evolution over the years. So basically charting every snap, what they're doing, tracking advanced stats, because, you know, you can go to the big dogs like ESPN.com and you can't find something basic like targets. I went to see how many times Seth Williams was target. You couldn't find it there. You could find it on my site. You can see where passes are going, like so passing charts, heat maps, um, in addition to, like I said, those advanced statistics with those schematic details. So um, as we know, it just means more in this conference, and I think uh, people, fans in this conference deserve the content and the coverage that follows suit with that moniker. There you go. I know you guys all like that. Just hit you over the head with some with some stat introduction yeah um, i'm gonna i'm gonna stay on the forefront i'm gonna yeah. pre-apologize for all the jargon i'm gonna throw out at you so if it's something if it sounds like garbage gook feel free to stop me so i can give you a quick definition of what i'm talking about no, i don't want to no, lose anybody here no apologies needed we are we are doing a at auburn undercover trying to dig deeper and, and figure out what plays and, and games mean rather than just face value so you are the the perfect guest for that um okay so let's dive right into it and talk a little bit about Auburn first, and then we'll get to a break later and talk about the SEC after that. One of your favorite stories, um, analysis pieces recently that I liked a lot was your returning running back breakdown in the SEC. Now, obviously, every Auburn fan thinks Tank Bigsby is the best running back in the conference. Uh, you look across the country and people think, you know, he's competing with guys like Bijan Robinson and, and Brees Hall to be the best running back returning in the country. Uh, he, he very well could be, and I'm sure you agree with that, but uh, you did not have him as the top guy in the SEC. He's got a lot of competition up there. Um, I liked the guy that you have. Number one, I, I like him a lot. 
but why is your number one the best running back in the SEC? And kind of explain how you you went into that ranking and, and what kind of your qualifications were. So in addition to just looking at what somebody did on their face, overall, you know, just looking cumulative production, what did this running back do with advanced analytics? I also broke it down into situations. You know, I didn't let just short yardage decided. I didn't let just red zone carries decided. I didn't let just zone stuff um, decided. So I basically broke it out into five or six different categories, saw the returners that ranked or qualified for those parameters based, you know, they got a decent amount of yardage or a decent amount of carries with those parameters. So their sample size was at least decent to um, put up against another one another and measure them. So at the end of the day, Chris Rodriguez's from Kentucky, his efficiency just stood out in a sense that no other back in the conference did. Even in the last three years, there's this thing called success rate that I really, really like. It's basically putting all situations into a third down. Yes, no. Did we convert? Did we get the job done? Yes, no scenario. So on first down, you have to gain at least 50% of yards to gain. Second down, 70% of yards to gain. Third and fourth down, obviously 100%. Using that, he was situationally successful on two-thirds of his carries. That's over 8% higher than the next closest guy in the conference, and it's by far the highest in the last three years. Meanwhile, when you look at things like expected points added, which is becoming a lot more popular for people who cover the NFL, um, this is basically taking success rate and adding, okay, of those successful plays, on average, how often does that lead to points? So points per play is just a different way to splice it up and present it. Well, his EPA per play is the highest in the country returning, and it's even higher than the top two quarterbacks clip per pass. And as we know, generally, passing is a lot more efficient than running the ball. So his efficiency just jumps off the freaking page. In addition to the fact, yeah, he's number one in yak average. He's sixth in broken tackle rate. He um, wasn't just necessarily running to green grass. He was using his brawn, his might to get these yardages to, um, to definitely show that he is a valuable running back and just not, you know, a guy who's just showing up every week. That being said, I really do like Tanks Bigby because, like I said, when you break out to these different scenarios, he was basically top three in a lot of these things like red zone, short yardage, third down, you know, instances where a back can really display his value above his expectations. So – when you tie that in with the conference's number one broken tackle rate among the volume guys, it's very easy to see this guy's upside. Absolutely. Because he's only a sophomore. Chris Rodriguez, he's going to be a redshirt junior. So he's got two years more under his belt, but he's just been a more consistent player against SEC defenses. Because if I wanted to go back a year before, guess what? Guess who was number one in yak and broken tackle rate in SEC play? Kentucky's Chris Rodriguez. He's not just no flash in the pan guy in a pandemic season. He's a guy who is poised, especially with their run for style of play, even though it's going to be a new offense coordinator, they're going to try and get outside of that inside zone base to more outside zone, but there's no reason to think that he cannot continue executing at a very, very high level. Yeah. The, the thing with Bigsby for me was the broken tackles. And so I'm glad yeah. you got into that. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Cause I'll, there's a thing called stable metrics and um, you know, kind of result-based metrics. Stable metrics are things you try to want to look at year in, year out, how you can prognosticate what a backs can do. Yak average, yards after contact is one. The other one, broken tackle rate. Those are the top two things that you would like to look at for a back. And again, since your boy is number one in the conference, that it's really easy to get on his bandwagon. So when you're, when you're assessing guys like that, you're talking about Rodriguez having a little bit more, I mean, not a little bit, a good bit more of a sample size, whereas Bigsby, he only had four or five games where he had 15 or more carries because he wasn't used that much at the beginning of the year. And then at the injury, at the end of the season, how much do you, how, how difficult does that make that kind of comparison when you've got a guy that does it, you know, at Bigsby's clip where obviously when he was healthy, he was incredible um, to a guy who's maybe elongated that production a little bit more. How, how does that comparison work for you? Well, here, the thing with Chris Rodriguez, he basically wasn't the number one running back for the second straight year until the back half of the schedule. And he missed Kentucky's games against Alabama and Florida. He had COVID. He was, he was out for back-to-back games. So those were their two hardest opponents. And, you know, you look at the scoreboard, you look at the results, boy, those were probably Kentucky's two ugliest games. So even though um, Rodriguez is p- perhaps more um, experienced, I think that Bigsby actually has more tread on the tires. I know he out-touched him last year. He had more carries than Rodriguez last year. So um, even though – 
yeah, it looks like both are going to be run running back ones. I wouldn't necessarily throw that out. But the thing that I would look at more so than just, you know, per go- uh, volume of games played is quality opponents. Because if everyone's just playing Vanderbilt or Ole Miss's defense and you're just running through arm tackles every week, obviously your numbers are going to be a little bit more inflated than if you do play the Alabamas, the Floridas, the LSUs, the Georgias every week. So Bigsby had a lot of success kind of not necessarily in spite of his offensive line because they, they did play well in spots, but yes, down the course spots. of the season. <laughs> yes. In spots, yes. but down the course of the season, uh, they were injury riddled obviously. And then, you know, they just, they were good, not great to start with. So where do you stand kind of looking at Auburn's offensive line in terms of what they did? Were they, were they better? Don't let me blindside you with this. If you have to take a second, but were they better at run blocking or pass blocking in the advanced statistics and, and, you know, they're returning a lot of the same guys. It might be almost the same one. Where do those specific guys need to take a bigger step next season? Oh, well, to answer your question, it was basically incredibly inconsistent in both facets. Basically, uh, they allowed um, the fifth worst pressure rate and the fifth worst offensive run havoc rate. So havoc rate is kind of these new fangled statistics, but um, it's the fudge stuff up metric. If you want to think of it from the defensive side of the ball. So anytime the defense is doing something positive, so we're getting contact in the backfield, we're forcing fumbles, we're getting sacks. Well, in the run game, 33% of Auburn's runs experience a form of havoc. That is incredibly difficult. But if you flip forward, well, if you look at just run yards before contact, only Georgia and Texas A&M were better in the conference when the point margin was 18 points or less. Pretty good, right? But that's the thing. It was just so freaking inconsistent. And, of course, when um, you just couldn't get that that footing, when you had injuries, and when you had the, the volatility of Bo Nix in the passing game, it was just really tough to put a lot of things together for Auburn. But, um, yeah, it was just a complete mix of good and bad, but it was just a matter of the bad plays definitely outweighed the long breakaways on average. So um, even though, yeah, on paper, there were some things that really stood out for Auburn's offensive line at the end of the day, it's really hard to say that you were pleased with the result. Yeah. And a lot of those same guys coming back. So definitely hoping that the new, they're hoping that the new staff will write the ship a little bit and get them in better shape for the fall. Good segue because um, Bonix is what we're going to go into now. Um, All throughout last season, I mean, week by week, looking at your stuff and the stuff you tweet out, um, and let me get let me get your Twitter handle pulled up so I can go ahead and shout it out. Yeah, SEC okay. underscore underscore StatCat. Please follow him. It'll it'll make you a smarter fan during the week of your games. Um, but over the course of the season, uh, not kind. The, the stats were not kind to Bo Nix. I mean, just I wasn't kind either. I mean, look more often than not. I generally don't like to take sides, but I generally like to chart efficiency over just like making my eyes bleed watching someone's tape. And boy, that Georgia game was an instant headache for me. It was just constant him running for his life. And I forgot to mention this. Um, I track broken plays. So, you know, when an offensive design just completely breaks down, either by um, defensive um, intuition or if it's just quarterback overthinking, well, um, 13% of Auburn's plays were broken last year in addition to Bo Nix just not being entirely comfortable. So um, into these um, stable metrics with the quarterbacks. I like to look at accuracy. Well, Bo Nix of the 11 returning SECers with at least 68 attempts last year, only Harrison Bailey was worse in depth adjusted accuracy. So it's really, really hard to get um, behind him. Um, he was also bottom two in passing success rate. Not good. Bottom three in first down touchdown rate. He was below average in explosive pass rate. So so down to down, he's below average. Getting explosive gains, 20 yards or more, he's below average. Accuracy, just terrible. Not a whole lot of um, positivity going forward in that corner here. And when you look at someone like TJ Finley, and uh, even though he was raw himself, you could definitely argue, at least I have already made this argument, this quarterback competition needs to be alive and well, and there should be no freaking guarantee Bo Nix starts week one. Because um, I wrote an article, it was my first article this offseason, I like to look at things called passing floors. So when you strip away pressure, when you strip away RPO stuff, these gimme throws, how does a quarterback operate in the dropback game? 
when he has absolutely no excuses to point to and say, well, there was a guy at my feet or there was a guy being plus my, or my guy slipped. No. If you take that out, well, Bo Nix has the worst passing floor of all the 11 returners I just mentioned. He's dead last in passing success rate. He's dead last in accuracy. He's second to worst in depth adjusted accuracy. Meanwhile, Finley, he's third in raw accuracy, fourth in depth adjusted. He's on the positive side of first down touchdown rate. Um, he's not as explosive. He's not as downfield oriented. But um, when you're bringing in someone like Mike Bobo, when it's presumed, it's going to be a lot more pro style, um, more stuff with eye formation, play action stuff. Well, guess who was the number? Who was the number one most accurate passer off of those situations in the SEC last year? It was LSU freshman TJ Finley. So oh, just straight it's just play really, action. Just all play action. Straight play action. Yeah, I mean, like, obviously when he's pressured, he wasn't so good. Third down, mm-hmm. not so good. But in, in his little box, when he's operating from the pocket and he can get that little glance post or that dig over the middle, he was quite effective. And, of course, with the um, Teeleys kind of hinting that Auburn's going to do a little bit kind of what they did under Malzahn, kind of a little bit under what Bobo does, at least from the spring game, it's really tough to judge schematics from those types of games. But they try to do the best of the both worlds from that um, – from my interpretation of it. But that's the thing. Finley really does align with where this offense is going forward. And because Nick's just offers accuracy that is just impossible to back, it's impossible to make excuses for, you know, I'm really looking forward to how that competition develops in the early weeks of the season. I, I love this objectivity right now because, you know, we didn't even know we were going to get into this and it's all yeah. stat based. So I, I love this. Let, let's, let's lean into this a little bit more. Because I remember when Finley did commit to Auburn, you were tweeting out some stuff about how he compares to Bo Nix. And I remember even back then you were kind of like, nudge, nudge, you know, this may be an assumption thing, but maybe don't because Finley has some better some better areas. Um, when Finley committed, he said that Auburn staff communicated to him and said that he's not coming. He's coming in to compete for the starting job. So let's let's rekindle that just a little bit. What are some other areas that Finley was able – to have over Knicks that you think are fair because I think a lot of people listening to what you just said will probably, and because my mind a little bit, okay, Auburn's offensive line, because you could definitely point to them in a lot of situations, like the Georgia game. I mean, there'd be got free rushers in his face in a second. How mm-hmm. comparable was Finley's offensive line last season to Knicks's last year in terms of how much pressure he was facing and, and, and getting out of the pocket and just, I guess, are they on equal? Is it equal footing? Are you looking at these stats and equal or kind of with the same underlying variables? In terms of uh, pressure rate, sure. In terms of uh, schematics, maybe not so much. Um, I know when Miles Brennan was in there, LSU's offense was very vertical. They were very effective doing the divide, 989, doubles, whatever you want to call it, concept. But once he was out, uh, Finley and Max Johnson both, they did a little bit more flood-oriented patterns, so cross, um, levels, intermediate passing game. So that's one area that really jumped off the screen for Finley. Intermediate passing, contested window passing, um, much better than Bo Nix. For whatever reason, as we know under Malzahn, it's been, it's been dink and chuck, as I like to say. It's either a, a bubble screen, a little hitch route, or it's a fader or post down the sideline. Very little intermediate game, very little things to the um, uh, between the numbers, for lack of better words, towards the middle of the field. Um, LSU, of course, that's really where they feasted. They really want to hit that bread basket. And, of course, that's been um, their big offensive evolution from the past few years, and they're definitely going to try and get back with that, getting Mangus and Pete back there as far as the offensive brain trust. But, yeah, that's this, just this – thing with Bo Nix is trying to coax a little bit more versatility in what he's asked to do. I even think um, Seth Williams said this during draft season. It's like, yeah, we weren't taught a route tree. Yep. So if it's all just that isolation stuff outside the numbers, whether you're reading vertical fade, hitch, comeback, um, whatever. Yeah. It's not going to really help your quarterback when you're just trying to play one-on-one ball and throw back shoulder fades and beat cover three stuff, but you got to have a little bit more versatility towards the middle of the field. And even in his, his short little stint there, um, I think that Finley displayed a lot more versatility. So I'm going to go to the, the glasses as, as Tony Kornheiser likes to say, I wrote this down. So um, Nick's targeting vertical routes. So we're talking about goes, phase and seams. He targeted the second most last year in the SEC, but you know what? He had the third worst completion percentage. And while I just got um, finished 
um, complimenting Finley. He was even worse than Nick's targeting deep. But that's okay because apparently from Mike Bobo, that's something he's not really going to try and plan to do. According to what they did at South Carolina last year, it was a lot more West Coast stuff. So we're talking slants, spot concept, underneath stuff, where the max route downfield is probably about 18 yards downfield. So, again, that will play a lot more into um, Finley's style of play. And even though Nix is thought of as that strong-arm quarterback, he's really not necessarily cut out to drive the ball downfield accurately. And, again, if he's going to be struggling targeting tight windows, operating out of structure, as in under center, not from the gun all the time, turning your back, towards the defense on occasion with these play actions and you already do suffer from ball placement issues. I just have um, a lot more questions than um, solace at this point in time. Yeah. So when you guys, when we get around to fall camp and it's Finley versus Knicks, you've got all that information now um, to back it up. Really glad we were able to touch on that. Cause I didn't know, I didn't know that's what we would lead into. Okay. So now moving on, we'll get out to a couple more Auburn related things that I wanted to talk about moving on to this defense. Um, where I've kind of stood this off season is that I think the linebacking core is obviously really strong. Zacoby McLean and Owen Papo are, are a pretty good duo. Um, and then the secondary I'm on the Nehemiah Pritchett hype train a lot of, because of stuff that, you know, people like you post of his advanced statistics mm-hmm. and the secondary, um, pretty solid. Tell me a little bit about Auburn's difference on their defensive line in terms of the push, um, and the havoc they were able to create from 19 to 20 was it an expected drop off when you lose two guys like Derek Brown and Marlon Davidson or was it a little bit worse than it maybe should have been and and I guess kind of how you see that being remedied this season I don't think it was necessarily the worst thing because they still got sacks they're still top four in the sack rate even if the the pressure the consistency where they were affecting opposing quarterbacks they were a little bit more anemic in that sense and of course that does hurt down to down, but they still got a decent amount of production out of that position group. But the biggest thing for me is just, yeah, the down to down stuff permeated into allowing a little bit more manageable third downs. No, I think Auburn was probably number one in the country in forcing three and outs um, two years ago. Well, when you go from number one in the country, number one in the conference to bottom five, yeah, it's going to wear, wear you thin. And of course, while you might be okay in yards per play, you only went, you only, decreased by about a, a half a yard year over year but again the down-to-down defensive success rate like I just described for offense invert that it's worse by eight percent you go from second best in the conference to being average and when when you, that's something you hung your hat on and you're not getting turnovers you're basically just playing bend don't break and as we know um if quarterbacks are not really pressured or altered or made uncomfortable they're just gonna play pitch and catch all day and that's basically what happened even though Auburn yeah they themselves, their pass defense was the strength of that defense. But again, um, the average pass gains more than the average run. So when you do have that occasional lapse, it's a 15-yard uh, yard allowed as opposed to a five-yard allowed. So um, I do think that the defensive line will be a, another liability this year. Of course, losing two key contributors in Big Cat and uh, Newkirk to transfer portal is not going to be great. And uh, from where I said, again, we don't want to lead too much into the spring game. It, I didn't look – I was not impressed at all from the defensive line from what I saw in the spring game. Of course, Tanks Big, Tank Bigsby had a really nice long breakaway. But, yeah, number 99 on that defensive front, it just looked like completely dead in the water. And I would hope to think that it is just, okay, we have watered-down numbers. We can't really, you know, fill the whole unit. We have to split it up and all that type of stuff. And, of course, when you're moving one of – your tight ends to that position. And he's going to have to basically have a baptism by fire in the sec. Um, I just have a lot of more, um, like you said, a lot more questions about that position group than the linebackers in the secondary. Getting back to talking about alignments along that defensive line, because they are switching it up with Derek Mason coming in um, just solely in terms of scheme. What should Auburn fans know? We, we've kind of been able to discern some things from, like you said, watching the spring game and, hearing from Derek Mason and the players this spring. Um, But from what Mason did over the past few years at Vanderbilt, when you were charting their defenses and looking at them, what are kind of some basic things that Auburn fans should know about what this defense is going to look like? 
Yeah, well, Vanderbilt, they've always been kind of uh, strong-armed from what personnel they had. So, like, he wasn't necessarily able to run exactly what he wanted because it just didn't make sense. But, yeah, you're going to get a little bit more odd fronts. You're going to get a little bit more distortion. You're going to try and get a little bit more confusion on the back ends. Um, I wouldn't necessarily expect a whole lot of blitzing. I don't think that's necessarily part of Derek Mason's um, MO, but he's definitely going to not run the same coverage every time and drop back and just play cover three every time. I think he's going to try and give a little bit more confusion. Um, a little bit more mixing coverage and a little bit more of um, stunts up front. Not necessarily blitzes, like I said, but stunts where you're not going to just do wide nines and three techniques and just send four guys. We're going to have a little bit more loops and a little bit more things where you're going to try and distort the, the offensive line on the other side of the ball and create confusion and get a little bit more, um, make your job a little bit more easier as opposed to just being so deliberate in your um, modus operandi. I don't know if this is something that you, and if, if it's not something you observe, then we can completely move on. But, I thought the two down lineup was really interesting um, in the spring game where they put down two, yeah. two defensive linemen um, had two edge ru- yeah. ad- rushers kind of flanking them. Um, what does that look like across the conference? Is that something that I, mean, it's not, I don't know if maybe I just haven't been paying attention that much. Is that something that's a little bit more common and how often can a Derek Mason defense flex to that? And kind of what is that good at doing in situations? Yeah, it's good at confusing because, is like if you just have those two flanker guys, you don't know what they're going to come, if they're going to drop back on either side, if they're both going to come, if someone if behind them is going to loop around. It's, it's, just, it's all trying to mess with the pass sets and the run rules because if you're, if it's a zone run, obviously you have your keys. Well, if your key moves as soon as the ball snap, well, that little stab could result in um, – uh, you know, a bad play. And while I don't necessarily track defensive alignment per se, like how many times they had three down or how many times they had four down, or how many times they had two down or whatever, or how many um, times they had three safeties. It, um, that is the trend that I think is going to happen a little bit more with teams becoming a little bit more pass heavy. We're trying to create confusion, not only with these um, simulated pressures. So like where we have a lot of people mugging the line of scrimmage where you might only have one, two, three guys with their hand actually in the dirt. And then you have all this variability. Okay. How many people can actually jump back into coverage and who's actually coming? So those simulated pressures are becoming um, more and more popular, but at the same time, so is just being um, very smart on your back end and using um, only three downs, three linebackers and five defensive backs and playing into stopping the pass a little bit more than stopping the run. Of course, in this conference, we know traditionally it's a run first conference. You're still going to have to be, the, be able to run the ball and stop the ball. But as we've seen with Alabama, LSU, Florida, you're going to have to be able to stop the pass or you're going to be, you're going to be allowing a lot of points at the end of the day. So um, while those simulator pressures are coming in, I think just using a lot more safeties and using a lot more of these hybrid fronts, with um, the athletes involved, because again, at the end of the day, you want to get as much speed and tactical advantages on the field in this conference. So while you do open yourself up to, you know, be run on, it's all about stopping the pass, in my opinion, from where the game is moving. Yeah, the points, I think I saw something that from like five years ago, SEC average of points per game is up like six and a half or something like that, which doesn't seem like mm-hmm. a monstrous number, but I mean, that's that's huge. That's, that's really, really big. Um, so yeah, like you said, stopping the pass is probably the number one thing. Who who do you bes- let's go besides Roger McCreary because he is kind of a mid round draft guy, uh, or maybe he's not. Maybe he w- wouldn't be the number one guy to you. Um, besides Roger McCreary, who for you is the most valuable player on that Auburn defense? Is it Kobe McLean? Is it Smoke Monday? What do you think? I really like. Or do you need a minute? I like Smoke Monday just because. And I like Smoke Monday just because, like I said, the cornerback position, that is at a premium. So um, the PFF guys, they have a stance you can never have too many cornerbacks these days. So um, I think absolutely he's going to be set himself to be the most valuable person because if you can take away um, explosive plays through the air and you can provide takeaways, and that was one thing that in addition to three and out rate that Auburn basically struggled at last year, they went from, I think, top five to I know at least bottom five within the conference in that metric last year. So um, that's absolutely something to keep an eye on because, yeah, end of the day, you got to have to stop the pass, and I'm just going to lean into that pass-defending cornerback. How much have you – how many, and you you met McCreary right over Monday at corner. Yes, I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, you're fine. Long you're fine. <laughs> you're no no big deal. Um, how much do you know about you know your all your stuff is SEC and we'll move on to non Auburn stuff after this. But um, Dreshawn Miller seems like a guy that people from the Big Twelve and people at PFF 
are a little bit high on that could be a guy that's almost comparable to McCreary and, and could kind of give them a good cornerback duo. Do you think he has a chance to make them one of the better corner duos in the SEC, or what, what, what's kind of your opinion on a guy like him? I'm going to uh, preface this. I don't know much other than what I have seen from the PFF stuff. So with the transfers, um, I generally like to watch their three hardest games um, from their opponents. Like I said, it's not necessarily about the volume of games. It's who they played. Well, we had a truncated season and, you know, just looking at it on its face, they, they, they play a lot more of a quarters style defense. So cover four, four deep people. Um, and that's a lot more of a tactical pattern that people are starting to run to stop RPOs. So um, I don't know how much of that's going to be in Derek Mason's future, but just in terms of what he can offer, like I would just get um, busy saying you cannot have enough quality defensive backs and cornerbacks that can stop the pass. So um, I'm going to default and just say what PFF says. I'm going to back it for now, but until I can actually watch him in SEC action, I'm not going to be able to give you a, um, let's just say a substantial opinion on him at this point in time. Well, we'll check back for sure when when a few yes few weeks check go. on that yes after they play penn state because like you said quality of opponent can't be can't yes. be akron or georgia state another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where bank of america can help for your financial to-dos bank of america has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals get started at one of our local financial centers or 24 7 in our mobile banking app Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Um, okay, so let's get into let's get into a little, a little game here. We'll do a buy or sell. Um, and I guess sort of it'll be take this player or the field. So some, some common SEC storylines as we get closer to media days and people are going to keep talking about these kinds of things. So... Um, JT Daniels from Georgia, probably yes. getting the, the most Heisman buzz of any SEC player, but or at least an offensive player. Um, is he the first team quarterback, first team all SEC quarterback by December? Are you buying or are you selling that? Sell. Um, I have concerns with his process metrics, his result based metrics really hard to find holes in them okay because he leads the conference or the returners in yards per attempt average depth of target so he's pushing that ball downfield he's not letting his guys do stuff after the catch um but yeah bottom three in depth adjusted accuracy so while he's throwing it deep downfield he's not necessarily the most um a suited passer for this vertical passing scheme. And yeah, you, when you bring in Arik Gilbert and you're um, bringing back Jermaine Burton and a few other very talented, big targets to throw the ball to, it's a really easy sell. But look, and that's in that four game sample that I saw him, I have massive concerns about his accuracy. And like I said about charting guys coming into this conference, well, guess what I did when he was coming into this conference last year? I watched his five hardest games, and he did not look like a talented deep ball passer. His balls consistently die. It's like a dead duck out there. Sure, sometimes he will overthrow somebody, but most times they just die in the air and they fall really hard like a dead rock. So um, I have a lot of concerns with him. I like Matt Corral much, much more. So a lot of people can say they have concerns losing Elijah Moore, and obviously that's going to be a concern with Matt Corral. Well, Braylon Sanders and Ontario Drummond are the top two returning vertical pass catchers in this conference. So um, they are absolutely due for explosive gains. And when you have a play caller like Lane Kiffin and an offensive coordinator, I should say an offensive designer like Lane Kiffin and an offensive coordinator like Jeff Levy, because Levy still calls the plays. We're gonna die. We're gonna die on that hill. He still calls the plays. It's his offense. Um, they are definitely gonna help him a little bit more, find more efficiency than I think um, that it's playing more to his strengths than just like kind of pigeonholing JT Daniels. But again, he's giving his guys chances out of that. Um, Stetson Bennett just simply was not. And when you're just giving very talented pass catchers at least a chance at it, you like to lean into those explosive plays. But I'm going to sell him being the SEC's quarterback one by the end of the year just because I really like what Matt Corral has shown me over the past year and a half. Because, again, if you go back to 2019, he was still a very more apt downfield thrower, explosive thrower, and result-based thrower than J.T. Daniels over that time period. Yeah, at least in Auburn fans. I mean, Auburn fans didn't really see Daniels last season based on when they played Georgia. 
Um, but I think Corral doesn't matter. Scares, but yeah, I think Corral scares them a lot. I think they can speak for can speak for the Auburn fan base that uh, they were not happy to see Matt Corral on the field. So when I talked about those four metrics earlier, Matt Corral's number one. So like it's not just the fact that his overall stuff was just better. His clean drop pack stuff far and away better than JT Daniels at this point in time. So success rate, he's 7% points better. Accuracy, 10% points better. Depth adjusted accuracy, 20% points better than JT Daniels based on their play last year. So in my mind, Matt Corral is easily the better option at this point in time. All right, so let's stick with somebody you talked about there. More impactful transfer this season. Is it Henry Toto? Tennessee to Alabama, or is it Arik Gilbert like you just talked about at Georgia? God, I love, I really do like Toto. Um, yeah, and that's the thing with uh, with Georgia last year, their 12 personnel stuff, it really wasn't that much better than their overall figures. And last time I checked, which was last week, Arik Gilbert, he's listed as a wide receiver. So I might be thinking a little bit too much about that 12 personnel thing. Of course, 11s become base for basically everybody these days. So if he's going to be an inside dominating receiver or if he's literally going to be Kyle Pitts, but just not a quote unquote tight end, and they're just going to move him out wide while basically keep him in that inline position a little bit. Um, I do think that he's going to provide a little bit more upside for that offense because um, Kyrus Jackson, he's going to be, le- he's going to be leaned upon a little bit more than he was last year. He operates from that slot. So it's just a matter of who's going to get the lion's share of those targets. At LSU, Arik Gilbert was a lot more of a safety valve. They do the thing, like I was mentioning with Miles Brennan, where they do the 989, the double sting. They chip with their tight end, and they basically ask him to run a little um, shallow route or just a little dump-off route. He's not necessarily working downfield a whole lot. When you look at his highlights from high school, that's basically all he was doing. He was just running down the seam, um, reckless abandon there. So that definitely fits in with what Monken likes to do. Haas is a concept that I really like for them. So Haas is just curl seams. Um, Florida actually ran this a whole lot last year, and they did a little slot juke action. They basically stole it from the New England Patriots about a decade ago when you can think of Rob Gronkowski running down the seam or Julian Edelman juking dudes out of their shoes from the inside. That's basically the stuff they've been running. So um, Haas without the juke is something that Georgia absolutely leaned into last year. And with Enrique Gilbert and on the other side of the ball, Kyrus Jackson, it's really going to test that middle-of-the-field safety if people want to go single high and man up people. So I think he, at the end of the day, is going to be a little bit more of an impactful um, transfer because, I mean, Georgia has been a piece of way. It seems like they've been a piece of way, whether it be the quarterback, whether it be somebody on the defensive line, whether it be a, um, a more consistent blocker up front. While as Alabama, as we've seen, they basically change quarterbacks midseason and they just roll and keep going. So even though I really do think highly of Toto as a linebacker, at this point in time, I'm just going to have to say that Arik Gilbert will be the most impactful transfer of those two options. Okay, next one I've got for you. Is it a lock, buy or sell, that it's a lock that we'll be seeing Alabama and Georgia in Atlanta in December? I'm not going to say it's a lock, but I'm going to say it's about an 85% probability that that's going to happen. I'm going to give an outside chance to the SEC East basically cannibalizing itself and maybe somebody like Kentucky or Florida getting in with two or three losses. Um, I do – I mean, I don't think anyone's going to challenge Alabama in the West, even though, yeah, I have concerns with Bryce Young sliding in on in their day one and being effective, but it's just the defense is going to be a high level. They still have Mechie as a great field stretcher. Brian Robinson, he's the second most successful returning running back in the conference. So um, it's not like he's going to have a a lack of weapons to distribute. It's just um, I think it's going to take a little bit more time to find his footing. So during that um, inoculation period, can someone strike? I don't think so. So that's why I really think I really do love their chances to skirt through. But as a lock, I'm going to say no on the lock. But yeah, I think it's highly probable, but I'm not going to. Uh, put my neck on the line and say, absolutely, it's going to happen. All right, so we got an either-or here. Both yeah, teams, it's, it's a terrible one. Yes. So, all right, next one up. So both teams, Texas A&M and Auburn in the West, uh, should be relying on their run game a good bit. Auburn, just not experienced receivers, You know, not necessarily great answers at quarterback. And then Texas A&M breaking it, which Texas A&M could have great quarterback play, but they're breaking a new one. Who rushes for more yards? Will it be? Isaiah Spiller or Tank Bixby? 
Well, I would, I'm going to say Tank Bixby because he's absolutely a dog. Um, Devin McCane came in at the end of the last year, and he's been one of the most fiery guys to close out the season. So uh, among the guys, you know, I mentioned the volume guys, guys who got at least 40 carries. Well, guys who got at least um, – or 50 carries, I'm sorry. Guys who got at least 40 carries. Kane's number one in broken tackle rate, yards per carry, success rate, yak average. So – very, very good, but it's just, the sample size is so small, but he's done so much where he deserves to take away carries from Spiller. And, and this is a big stress, while I like to think of Anaya Smith as more of a slot receiver, well, people like Mel Kuyper Jr. and uh, like Texas A&M's official roster continue to list him as a running back. So he's a very talented player, and he's going to take away snaps too. So even though, yeah, Sean Shivers, he has – a lot of success in years past attacking the edge with power concepts or jet sweep stuff. Um, it's just a very clear cut operation where Tank Bigsby should be the one of the more voluminous uh, runners in this conference, just because of how the style of play is going to line up, how his domineering style of play deserves more of a workhorse type of load than Spiller, a Kane and, um, and Isaiah Smith or uh, yeah, or uh, Anaya Smith clamoring for touches down in college station voluminous how about that y'all didn't think you'd be hearing voluminous on the podcast today did you it's a great word when you talk about the number counting stat it is a great word phenomenal my goal is now to use it in a story okay uh last or one of the last ones oh i got two more actually um buy or sell Derek stingley and eli ricks are the best cornerback duo in the sec i'm gonna buy that um last year obviously lsu's defense got torched torched um despite being basically the best in havoc and pressure rate they were terrible in yards before contact yards after contact allowing explosive plays so um we know both is gone but i really really like that tandem um they came on obviously um lsu as a defense in 2019 towards the tail end of that season but consistently um stingley was valuable last year consistently ricks was valuable now can Stingley, can Stingley get back to his old self? I think he can. Now, um, the past game, way more volatile predicting year, predicting year in and year out. You got to think about because like, there's so much many, there's so much more routes someone can cover. The situations attached to those routes, a lot more variance than first and ten inside zone. So um, while there is a lot of hope, I am in that hopeful corner, in that band, that Bayou bandwagon corner of that secondary writing itself and definitely not looking as bad as it did last year. So I definitely buy that that tandem is number one in the SEC. All right. Last one, sir. And then we will let you go. Hope everybody has enjoyed this. I've had a really good time. Hope you guys have learned a lot. Who is one player just got a pinpoint one that not enough people are talking about in the SEC this off season. Well, I mentioned him at the top of the, of the podcast here and it's Kentucky Chris Rod Riggs. Maybe it's just the Kentucky football thing and you want to overlook him. That's fine. But when anybody leads the country and expected points average percentage of runs that gain either a first down or a touchdown PFF rushing grade. Um, I like to think that you're a pretty damn good running back and not enough people, Kentucky media included are talking enough about this kid. So um, that's a call out to all you Kentucky people out there. Talk this kid up because as much as you guys like Benny Snell, he's immensely more efficient than Benny Snell was. So if he increases his workload, um, he's going to set the world on fire. It it was only because he had those two COVID games that he didn't crack a a thousand yards last year. And it wasn't until week three that he wasn't RB three on their depth chart, which is inexplicable by the statistics. Um, yeah, so um, even though Auburn was able to bottom up last year, not too many of the defenses were. So he is absolutely a guy that I think is absolutely undervalued, under-discussed, and under the radar ahead of 2021. There you go. Well, once, once he breaks out next year, everyone who listens to this podcast today in June will not be surprised um, in the slightest. Uh, Mr. Clark, thank you so much for joining us today. We really, really appreciated it. Um, go check him out again, guys, at, uh, let's see here, make sure I got it right, at SEC underscore StatCat, and then the website is secstatcat.com, correct? 
That is correct. Yeah, okay, guys. Perfect. Um, su- subscribe. There's a lot of content videos on there right now. Like I was mentioning to Nathan before this, I'm working on our top five returner videos. So you can see where certain guys rank in fun stat categories like rushers behind the chains, red zone passers, deep passers, intermediate pass catchers, best drop back tight ends. All these random good stuff is what I'm producing right now. And of course, if a lot of this is over your head, well, you don't know what a, a slam concept is or a drive concept. Well, I got you covered. I got two minute videos or so that can break down the quick X's and O's that you can digest. There's some jokes, cutaways in there. So it's not just so nitty gritty football heavy jargon. It's meant to be fun. It's meant to be informative. It's meant to help the average fan become a little bit more knowledgeable about the game they love. So check that out at my website, www secstatcat.com yeah you guys for real go go check it out like he said you can kind of just dive in and, and spend an hour there learning a lot of stuff um so we're trying to make you guys smarter about auburn football at auburn undercover and he does a really good job making you smarter about sec football overall so definitely go check him out appreciate it again coming on the podcast we're going to get to a quick break we'll be right back on the auburn undercover podcast when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The big news on Thursday was that Auburn has finally scheduled another Power 5 opponent for the future, another home-and-home series. Obviously, they've got Penn State coming up these next couple seasons, and they've got Cal, Baylor, UCLA. And now they've added one with Miami. Obviously, that would be Miami, Florida. There's obviously Miami of Ohio. But you've seen programs around the country doing this a lot, and now Auburn has added a high-profile home-and-home series for the 2029 and 2030 seasons. That game will be in Miami on September 1st, 2029. And then Auburn will host Miami at Jordan-Hare Stadium on August 31st, 2030. So both of those look like they will be kickoff games. Um, It'd be surprising uh, unless the schedules work out that way, unless they're pushed back for some reason and seasons are starting a little sooner, which obviously anything could happen over the next eight, nine years, things could completely change in college football. We'll probably have the, you know, we'll definitely have the 12 team playoff by then. So we'll see how that affects regular season scheduling, but this falls in line with what Auburn has done recently in terms of its home and home series with power five programs going on the road first, like they're doing in Penn state. They're doing that with all of their series and then coming back home. So Auburn is seven and four against Miami. Uh, some fans will remember the 1984 kickoff game in New Jersey, Miami won that game by a narrow margin. And then the last time the two teams met in Auburn was in 1978 when Miami won 17-15. And then when the schools last met down there in South Beach, um, Auburn won that game 3-0 to in 1974. Auburn's last home-and-home series against an ACC school was the Clemson series. Obviously, Clemson won both of those games. They were both close defensive battles in 2016 inside Jordan-Hare Stadium and 2017 in Death Valley. So looking way ahead, there's obviously no way to project how either of these teams will be. Nobody knew what Auburn would look like in 2021 right now, nine years ago. Nobody knows what Miami is going to look like, but still should be a really fun road trip. They've got some good trips now on the schedule. Um, People say a lot of good things about Waco, Texas. That'll be a good trip to Baylor, obviously Cal and UCLA. Auburn doesn't get many excuses to um, head out west to California. And then Miami obviously will be a fun weekend down there in Florida. The other big news piece there on Thursday as we're recording this to set out to be published on Friday morning is that Auburn had another transfer portal, another guy outgoing in the transfer portal. Um, And that is freshman wide receiver Hal Presley. He was a three-star out of Texas in the 2021 class. He had arrived on campus two weeks ago when we were up there for recruiting visits. We saw him around campus. He had, he had moved in. He had started summer workouts with the program. And, you know, just about two weeks, I guess less than two weeks later, um, he is now leaving the program and he has entered the transfer portal because he did sign with the team and he had officially joined the program and enrolled and all that good stuff. 
he is eligible to be in the transfer portal. So he is a transfer. It's not one of those situations where he can back out or he's now a part of the 2021 class again and can get out of his letter of intent. He's not doing any of that. He is officially um, in the transfer portal. So another one of those for Auburn, um, you know, they've had quite a few this off season, especially since Brian Harson took over. And since the end of spring ball, they've had plenty of outgoing transfers, but they've also had plenty of incoming. It's definitely not something um, that's unique to the Tigers and unique to Brian Harson's program. It is a little unusual, of course, to see a player that just began his career and hasn't had any practices with the program and has only had workouts and conditioning to leave, but things happen and kids have their reasons to do it. And so now there's only one uh, freshman wide receiver in this 2021 class, and that is Travarish Dawson, the number 25 athlete in the country from down there, the Fort Myers area in Florida. He played cornerback. He was uh, a guy who played everywhere on the field, actually, but he was a cornerback prospect in the 24-7 rankings, but Auburn has him playing wide receiver. So I mean, the depth kind of takes a bit of a hit here for Auburn. Now they're only going into the season with, I believe, nine scholarship players at receiver. And that's not a super small number, but it is a bit concerning when you consider the amount of inexperience. The most um, targeted returning guy is Tank Bixby out of the backfield and the guy with the most catches coming back. um, Xavier Capers and Kobe Hudson only had seven apiece. And then the most experienced career receiver is Shedrick Jackson, who has 10 career catches in three seasons. So not a room with somebody that you're looking at and you you understand that they're going to be a go-to receiver. Javarius Johnson had a really good spring. Elijah Canyon, I think, is really talented. Now, he was the lowest rated guy out of that 2020 class that included five wide receivers. Four of them were four-star prospects. So there's talent. There, there's plenty of talent there in that room, but is it going to be developed enough in the 2021 season to be consistent for Bo Nix? Auburn might look back in the portal again for a wide receiver. They were doing that early um, on in the process and were in for a few guys. There's some Juco players they could go after as well. So certainly something to keep an eye on moving forward, but how Presley is no longer part of Auburn's 2021 class. He is the second player to leave Auburn after arriving on campus in that class, obviously the Juco cornerback Kamal Haddon, he went through spring ball. He was an early enrollee. And after he went through spring practices, he decided to transfer out and he landed at Tennessee. So appreciate you guys for listening today. Hope everybody enjoyed that podcast. Wanted to make a quick note that people probably thought of um, Clark, you know, packs a lot of information in at once. So just a note that when he said 99 on defense, he meant J.J. Pegues. He meant 89 because obviously T.D. Moultrie did not play um, in that spring game. So and then obviously he later said Smoke Monday when he meant to say Roger McCreary. So kind of just putting a little asterisk and making sure everybody understood both those things when he said them. So but again, go check him out. SECstatcat.com. A lot of good stuff to try to understand not only Auburn, but the SEC as a whole and at large, um, just understanding everything they do from a statistical standpoint. And he does a wonderful job of breaking down players and teams. So definitely go check him out. Thank you guys so much for listening. Please go rate the show five stars if you um, enjoyed it. That really, really helps us out. And let me know what we need to do better. If you think there is something, definitely shoot me an email. It's in my Twitter account at King, or you can DM me on our message boards. The intro and outro music is by Beats by Mordecai, my good friend. That's Beats by Mordecai. You can find him on Twitter, SoundCloud, and Instagram. And until we hop on here next time, everybody have a good weekend. See you later.